You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from Mark 16, 1-8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tube, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Evanston Bible Fellowship. Again, I just have to get in on that, what we started with the, the call to worship, but he is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. It is so good to be with you, and thank you to those that are tuning in near and far. It is a delight to gather this day on, on Easter as we celebrate our risen King together. He who is risen and reigning, the King of kings and Lord of lords. My name is Tim. I have the privilege of serving at EBF as lead pastor, for those that may not know me. And uh, I thought uh, this is a very different set of circumstances to give my first message from the MIC, but I am so looking forward to when we'll, we'll, able, we'll be able to gather once more as a total body to worship our God and King together. But this morning, as we turn to God's holy word, would you join me in a word of prayer? Our Father, we recognize the wide array of places that many of us may be coming from this morning as we celebrate Easter. We pray, Lord, that you would meet us in our fear, in our joy, in our doubt, longings, in our celebration, and in our pain. And would you inspire us, Lord, with your words of truth would you renew our vision of Jesus, the resurrected King? We give you this time. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would illumine your holy word. Would you help us to grasp even more of the great heights and depths of your love for us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the singular issue upon which all of faith stands or falls. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Another way of saying this is that the resurrection of Jesus is the linchpin of the Christian faith. And yet the resurrection has been met with skepticism from atheists, agnostics, critics, and more. 
And the question that often arises is whether Jesus has been raised. A second important question, though, is why Jesus rose again. And that's what I want to do with our time together this morning, is look at those two big questions surrounding the resurrection. Whether Jesus was raised and why Jesus was raised. Whether and why. Perhaps you find yourself in a place of skepticism this morning. Or maybe, maybe there's someone close to you in your life that is in this place of wrestling. Perhaps you are holding on to faith by just a, a thin thread. And even as I prayed at the beginning, wherever you find yourself this morning, my hope and prayer is that as we encounter the truth of the risen King, that your heart would be encouraged, that perhaps if you have not come to a place of receiving Jesus, that faith would dawn in your heart, perhaps for the very first time, like the dawning of the resurrection that early morning, by the early morning light. My prayer is that through God's word, we would be given a renewed vision of he who is our risen king. And so in our time together this morning, we're going to do something a little bit different than what we normally do. We've, we've been going through the book of Ephesians together in a series called Unity in Christ. And then we took a pause from that to look at the King of Kings in Mark's gospel. Looking at Mark 11, Mark 15, and now Mark 16 as well. But even more, we're going to zoom out. And we're going to look together at 15 historical facts that provide compelling evidence for the resurrection. We will focus especially on the ones where there is strong evidence and a high degree of acceptance by virtually every scholar. And then we will ask, what is the meaning of the resurrection for our lives today? So again, following that rhythm of whether and why. By the way, I'm going to be going very quickly through these facts, these 15 compelling facts of the resurrection. If you can't uh, stay up on them, that's okay. They're found in the Church Center app as well. So I'd invite you to take a look at that instead of maybe furiously feeling like you need to write them all down. And each one of these facts, honestly, could be a message in and of itself. But let us begin with the first fact, and that is that the Old Testament laid the foundation for the resurrection. The Old Testament laid the foundation for the resurrection. This, this groundwork is laid along, along two lines in the Old Testament. One is the restoration of the people following exile, and the other is the theme of vindication, that is being proven right, the vindication of the righteous, as we see, like in Daniel 12. By the way, for each of these facts, what I'd like to do is highlight a representative passage that lends support or credence to that particular fact. And so Daniel 12, verses 2 and 3 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Each of these, as I mentioned, each of these, uh, each of these facts, uh, I'm going to provide a supporting passage that goes along with it. And each of these could be 
its own message, could be unpacked further. But let's, let's turn to the second fact, and that is Jesus predicted his death and resurrection during his earthly ministry. Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. Mark 8, verse 31 says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. This prediction of Jesus' resurrection factors prominently, in, especially in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Third fact, Jesus died an excruciating death by crucifixion. John 19 gives us a window into, this, into his suffering and death, the suffering that is actually found in all of the Gospels and, all, and supported by extensive evidence outside of Scripture as well. But in John 19, verse 30, it says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, this is as his time is nearing its end on the cross, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. This is later in verse 33. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Crucifixion was an unbelievably brutal form of torture and death. In the first century BC, Cicero refers to crucifixion as that most cruel and disgusting penalty. There are a number of non-Christian sources as well that also report Christ's death, including Lucian of Samosata, who wrote, the Christians, you know, worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. Not only did Jesus die an excruciating death, but then our fourth fact is that Jesus was buried. Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea. If your finger, if you're, if you're open to Mark 16 here, trace a little further or earlier there in Mark 15, verses 42 through 46. In verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. The fact that Joseph buried Jesus is probable since Christian authors were much more prone to criticize the religious leaders. If they had, think about this, if they had been, if they had gone to make up this story, they would have been very unlikely to have included a member of the religious council in such a prominent place in the story. The fifth fact is that the disciples, if you think about this point between Christ's death and resurrection, the disciples were filled with hopelessness and despair. Passages like Luke 24, 17 through 21, provide a window into the world of Jesus' closest followers as they wrestled with the reality of Jesus being crucified. 
Luke 24, 17. This is actually when Jesus appears to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he asked them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Jump down to verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. After Christ was brutally executed, all seemed lost. Christ's followers were discouraged, demoralized, and in complete disarray. But all of that melted away when, with our sixth fact here, three days later, the tomb was empty. Three days later, the tomb was empty. All four Gospels highlight the tomb being empty. And as we heard read in Mark 16, if you start there in verse 2, and very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Several clues in, in these gospel accounts highlight or point to the reality of the empty tomb from the fact that the stone had been rolled away, the presence of the angel, the place where he had, laid, had been laid being bare, and then, as John's gospel highlights, the grave clothes being left behind. Closely related to this is the seventh fact, and that is that women are presented as the primary witnesses and primary communicators of the resurrected Christ. Look back at Mark 16, especially verse 1 and then 7 and 8. Verse 1 says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint him. Again, we're reminded how women were the primary eyewitnesses of the empty tomb. And then they were entrusted with this message to bear as they moved forward. Verse 7, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. By the way, that, that ending of Mark's gospel, that verse 8, has always has been puzzling to me, but the reality is that that silence didn't last very long. For they indeed went and bore witness among Jesus' other followers that Jesus was alive. Ancient Jewish men did not accept the testimony of women as reliable in most legal settings. And if someone had made up the story, they would not have included women in the narrative, sad to say. Why? Because the prevalent view was that their testimony was unreliable. But the fact that women were the primary witnesses and communicators of the resurrection was revolutionary, dignifying, amazing. Fact eight turns a little darker, but the fact eight is that the attempted cover-up affirms the empty tomb. 
The attempted cover-up affirms the empty tomb. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28, we have this, this account of how the guards went and told the religious leaders what had happened. And so Mark, or Matthew 28, 12 through 13 says, and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. The Jewish claim that the disciples stole the body assumes that the body was no longer in the tomb. And to squash the rumor, all that they would have had to do was produce the body. Fact nine, the disciples believed that the risen Christ appeared to them. 1 Corinthians 15 verses three through eight really highlight this. It says, Again, Apostle Paul writing here, but he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. You might get the sense, and you'd be right, that most of this message is going to be going through Scripture. But the, the fact is that the risen Christ was genuinely seen in physical form by individuals, by groups, by skeptics, by unbelievers, and yes, even by enemies. Skeptics like Thomas, who Jesus invited to touch the nail marks in his hands and the scar in his side, and what did he end up doing? He declared, my Lord and my God. Unbelievers like James, Jesus' brother, who became a leader in the church and eventually martyred for the faith. And enemies like Paul, who went from terrorizing the early church to boldly proclaiming the risen Christ and ultimately suffering and dying for him. The tenth fact is that the disciples then proclaimed the risen Christ in Jerusalem. That's where they began, in Jerusalem. Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so it would have been impossible for Christianity to survive and expand in Jerusalem where all of these things took place if Jesus' body was still in the tomb. Again, all the religious leaders would have had to do would be to produce the body, to dig up the body and display it for everyone to see. Fact 11, the disciples, not only did they proclaim Jesus in Jerusalem, but they were transformed into bold proclaimers of the gospel who were willing to suffer imprisonment and death for that very truth. Acts 4, verses 1 through 3, as this is Peter and John, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and 
catch this, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. There is no other explanation for their transformation from scared and defeated to confident and unstoppable proclaimers of Jesus Christ. The unshakable belief that God raised Jesus drove their mission, drove their preaching, and drove, yes, their their great hope. The disciples were transformed into bold proclaimers of the gospel. And this fact, the 12th fact is that the resurrection then became the focal point. It was at the epicenter of the early church's teaching. Acts 2 gives us a great example of this in Peter's sermon at Pentecost. He gets up and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. The truth of the resurrection became a part of the oral tradition that was passed down from generation to generation. It became a matter, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, a matter of first importance. And the rest of the New Testament then goes on to bear powerful testimony to the risen king. And as a result, fact, the 13th fact here, is that as a result, the church was born. And not only was the church born, but it grew rapidly. We see examples of that in Acts, in Acts especially, but Acts 4, verse 4 says, but many of those who heard the word, remember what I just read, the word was proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. That's what they heard. Many believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Nothing else accounts for the rapid expansion of the early church. Nothing else accounts for it. Not only in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, but to the ends of the earth than their unswerving belief on the part of the disciples that Jesus had, in fact, been raised from the dead. The 14th fact, one that impacts us even now, too, is that Sunday became the primary day of worship. Acts 20, verse 7 says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. Don't worry, I'm not going to preach till midnight. I, I chuckle every time I read that as somebody that gets, has the opportunity to preach God's word. But ever since the resurrection, believers have gathered on the first day of the week. And every time we do this, we join in the resurrection parade. We are reminded yet again of the fact that Jesus is alive. The 15th fact, for the historians among us perhaps, the writings of the church fathers support the resurrection as well. Clement was the bishop of Rome and lived around AD 30 to 100. And listen to what he wrote in his letter to the Corinthian church. He writes, 
Therefore, having received orders and complete certainty caused by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and believing in the word of God, they went with the Holy Spirit's certainty, preaching the good news that the kingdom of God is about to come. What Clement is saying here is that the apostles were fully convinced of Christ's resurrection. And according to Irenaeus and Tertullian, Clement had spent some time with the apostles, most notably with Peter. And so he was in a good position to pass on this central truth, a truth that was central to the Christian message, the resurrection of Jesus. American author and poet John Updike wrote this wonderful poem called Seven Stanzas at Easter. Wrote this in 1961. I just want to share this excerpt. Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping, transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted into the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. I love that invitation. Let us walk through the door. All other theories surrounding the resurrection, all other theories shatter upon the bedrock of the historical truth of the resurrection. All other theories shatter on that bedrock. So what is the meaning and significance then of the resurrection for our lives today? The resurrection of Jesus, first of all, vindicated his work and demonstrated his victory. Vindicated his work and demonstrated his victory. Ephesians 1, verses 20 through 21 says, God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. The resurrection was the first step in God exalting Jesus to the highest place. Not only did it vindicate him, that is, prove him to be in the right, but it demonstrated his victory, his victory over the powers of evil and even death itself. Death could not hold him. But is there more to the story? You know, sometimes we run the risk, I think, of viewing the resurrection more as Christ's victory lap or perhaps as like the icing on the cake of the cross. That's a mixing of metaphors that doesn't exactly work, but I hope you understand what I'm saying. Instead of seeing the resurrection merely as the icing on the cake, church, let me say this, the cross and the resurrection, the cross and the resurrection are at the heart of the gospel. Picture the Golden Gate Bridge with its two towers, the magnificent span of the bridge with its two towers. The cross and the resurrection are like the two towers of God's eternal purpose to, to solve the two mountains of human misery, sin and death. The cross and the resurrection 
are like two towers of God's eternal purpose to solve the two mountains of human misery, sin and death. Here are four, just briefly here, four indicators that the resurrection is more than just Christ's victory lap. Christ's resurrection guarantees our new birth. We see that in 1 Peter 1, verse 3. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Christ's resurrection is vital for our justification. That is the declaration that we are not guilty before God, but are instead righteous. Romans 4.25 captures this. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Christ's resurrection also provides the grounds for our salvation. Romans 5 verse 10, and that verse ends, shall we be saved by his life? That we shall be saved by his life. And even as Hannah did a great job of reminding our kids in, in their memory verse this week, kids, I hope, you, I hope you place that verse deep within your heart. Romans 10, 9 reminds us that Christ's resurrection is a belief that is required for salvation. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I just want to pause here because you might find yourself in a place of wrestling this morning and hearing these concepts, maybe even hearing some of these concepts for the first time. And I just, want to, I just want you to know that God created you. That God loves you with a never-stopping love. That he made you uniquely in his image. But we rebelled against our creator. We shook our fist at him as a united humanity. Think that we could do better than him. But he, praise God, he did not leave us to our own devices he did not just say, have it your way and walk away. He purposed from eternity to send his son, Jesus Christ. He sent his son to, as I mentioned, to conquer the mountains of sin and death through his death and resurrection. He caused us to be born again into a living hope. He declared us righteous and he has rescued us by his life. And all we must do, as we've heard, is to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. May perhaps this be the day, the dawning of belief in your own heart. Or perhaps if this is something that you want to talk further about or have more of a conversation, grab coffee, sit you know, six feet away from each other and, and do so. I would, I would love to connect with you. I know so many in our church would love to connect with you as well. Uh, one thing that comes to mind is our online connection card. And you'll hear about that just in terms of um, if, if you're new to the church or wanting to connect with the life of the church. But on there, too, is a place to indicate if we can be praying for you in any way or if you'd like to connect to know more about exactly what I'm talking about here. He who brings life, Jesus. You know, the significance of the resurrection does not end, though, at salvation. The resurrection of Jesus, this is our, our third takeaway. The resurrection of Jesus provides power that is available to believers now. Christ's resurrection brought about a new era. 
We live now, we might say, between two worlds. You probably feel, we probably all have an innate sense of that. Experiencing some of its power while awaiting its ultimate fulfillment. On the one hand, resurrection life starts the moment we come to faith in Jesus Christ. When we are united to Christ in faith, his victory becomes our victory. Here, this is just a sample of some of the ways that the New Testament highlights this. We are already raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly realms, Ephesians 2, 6. We already participate in his new risen life now, Romans 6, 4. We are called to maintain a heavenly perspective. As Paul writes in Colossians 3, 1, set your minds on things that are above. The resurrection gives us power to stop yielding to sin, as we see in Romans 6, 11, and 12. And the resurrection motivates us to press on toward the ultimate goal. As Paul writes in Philippians 3, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Here's another way of thinking about this. Jesus' resurrection is like the D-Day of salvation. Jesus' return is like the V-Day, the victory day that is coming. Experience the power of Christ's resurrection in your life today. And last, the resurrection of Jesus, as I already alluded to, the resurrection of Jesus is our great hope. Our great hope. Jesus is the forerunner for what all believers will someday experience. 1 Corinthians 15, that entire chapter is one that we should just meditate upon and dwell on as it relates to our future resurrection as well. But that, describe, that passage describes Jesus as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ's resurrection is what guarantees our resurrection. We will be like him someday. 1 John 3 verse 2 includes that, that, um, that truth that we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Christ's resurrection guarantees that we will receive perfect resurrection bodies. I don't know about you, but I'm certainly feeling the breakdown of this this thing that you see before you right now, our bodies. 1 Corinthians 6.14 says, And God raised the Lord and will will also raise us up by his power. We will be fully conformed to the image of Christ. Creation will be liberated and we will receive, yes, the inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. So church, in, this, in light of this, the strong historical evidence that I pointed to and also these truths surrounding why Jesus rose from the dead, here is our bottom line. Core takeaway for us is let us, let us believe in the resurrected Christ. Walk in resurrection power and look forward to the resurrection to come. Let us believe in the resurrected Christ. Walk in resurrection power now and look forward to the resurrection to come. In the in-between, the resurrection of Jesus should inspire us to serve, to serve his kingdom. Because Jesus is alive, there is a new era. A new era is here. God's enemies should tremble Death has been defeated. 
And followers of Jesus Christ are fundamentally resurrection people. That is who we are. The resurrection should move us to take great risks for God, knowing that he is behind us, before us, and with us. He already ran the race before us, and now he cheers us on. So let us go and make disciples in his name. Let us serve as ambassadors, announcing the king who is coming. See, your king is coming. And if nothing else, the resurrection should cause us to fall on our face in worship and in wonder. Let us join in that resurrection parade. As we look forward to that day, when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords will return. John Chrysostom wrote this famous paschal homily in the fourth century, and it's been a tradition actually to stand when this is read. And that might feel a little weird. We might be out of practice when it comes to that, but would you stand with me wherever you are as we hear these words Christ is risen, and you, O death, are annihilated. Christ is risen, and the evil ones are cast down. Christ is risen, and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen, and life is liberated. Christ is risen, and the tomb is emptied of its dead. For Christ, having risen from the dead, is become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. To him be glory and power, now and forever, and from all ages to all ages. Amen. Eternal God, we praise you that your glory has dawned on us and brought us to this resurrection day. We rejoice that the grave could not hold your son and that he has conquered death risen to rule over all powers of this earth. We praise you that he summons us into new life, to follow him with joy, to serve him with gladness. And so, God, by your spirit, would you lift us from doubt? Would you lift us from despair? Would you set our feet in Christ's holy way? And may our lives be signs of his life. May we show his love to the world around us. Praise, glory, and thanksgiving to you, our God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.